Well, would you turn your Bibles with me, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we began our study of verses 13 and following last Lord's Day morning. We examined together the significance of this confession by Peter and the apostles that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so last Sunday morning, we we really just focused on the significance of what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This morning I want to press on and I want to look next at the significance of Jesus' words to Peter and the apostles in response. And we probably will take at least another Sunday on this passage because it is so significant in the history of of what God is doing in redemption, and also that there is some potential for some real misunderstanding. So we want to slow down here. These these words in Matthew 16, 13 through 20 are pivotal, and we want to make sure we understand them correctly by God's grace. I'm going to read beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask that the Spirit of our Lord would give us understanding and that we might apply his word rightly. Oh God, we pause, as is our habit, after the reading of the Scriptures before preaching, to thank you for your Word, to thank you for the clear teaching of it. And yet we recognize that there are some places where there are passages that have been so misunderstood and so twisted by our enemy that we must read them and understand them now in the light of all of the, the corrupt, misapplied, applications of this passage so help us we pray to know what is clear and that we would confess with our lips and with our lives both individually and as a church that jesus christ is lord in his name we pray amen there's much here that we have questions about let me just highlight some of them what exactly does jesus mean by saying to peter you are the rock uh, upon which I will build my church? Or, or what does Jesus mean when he says to Peter in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom? And, 
And we have large looming questions, and they are significant questions, not merely because of the passage, but because, as I alluded to in my prayer, of how these words have been misapplied, particularly and most prominently by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic's entire ecclesiastical authority and structure is essentially based on these verses and each pope is understood as the successor of Peter and they understand the authority that Jesus says in verse 18 to mean that the pope has infallible authority on par with scripture and and we now are living with nearly 2,000 years history of misunderstanding a misapplication by at least the Roman Catholic Church of these words. And so we wonder, and, and on the surface even, apart from the misunderstanding that we see in the Roman Catholic Church, the abuse of these words, we do wonder, well, even if it doesn't support the whole structure of Roman Catholicism and the Pope and so forth, what does Jesus mean? So there are some significant questions here that we are curious about and we want to look into, and we will together. But whenever we come to a passage of Scripture that, that is a little difficult for us, for whatever reason, we're scratching our heads, it's always good practice to slow down, take a deep breath, and to start with what is clear. What is clear in this passage? What is plain? What is almost obvious? What can we observe? And so this morning in my sermon, in my message, I, I want to share with you firstly, quickly, rather quickly, maybe the first half of this message, five observations as to what is clear. So we're just going to look at this passage and, and look at together what is clear, what is plain, what is incontrovertible. Because it's often in the clear and plain things that there is real impact Sometimes we can get so focused on one question in a text that we miss some of the things that are plain and binding upon us. So I was quickly, rather quickly, want to look at these five observations of what is clear. And then the remainder of our time, I want to address one of the big questions. And that is, what does Jesus mean in verse 18 by saying that Peter is this rock upon which Jesus will build his church? It's a big question, and I hope to address it this morning. So first of all, how do we, how do we understand this passage, and what can we glean immediately, or rather quickly, that is plain? What is, what is not um, involving confusion or question? First of all, I want you to notice that Christ's church is central and pivotal to his coming. His first coming, his second coming, and the history in between. The, we've become accustomed by now to, in this gospel as we're going along, to Jesus preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. We have become accustomed, as, as remarkable as it may sound, to witnessing Jesus as the Son of God, healing men and women of all kinds of diseases, casting out demons. We are accustomed by now, at this point in the gospel, to the opposition of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, of Jesus' 
courageous, unwavering stand in the face of their cynicism and willful unbelief. We have become oriented, if you will, to these things. He's now fed not only the 5,000 and the men and women with them the, from a few loaves and fishes. He's, he's now fed the 4,000 and the women and the children with a few loaves and fishes. So these things are amazing. They are startling. But by chapter 16 in Matthew, we're reading along and about this ministry of Jesus, and we are oriented to these things. But then, seemingly to us, out of nowhere, comes this language in chapter 16. After Jesus, rather Peter, on behalf of the apostles, makes his confession that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the prophesied Christ, the anointed one, that upon hearing that confession from Peter, Jesus then says things that we have not heard before. We haven't heard anything. I mean, this is, this is new to our ears. This is different. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the first time we've heard of the church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Verse 19, the keys of the kingdom. This is different language. This is new. Not new, entirely new, of course, to the scriptural revelation. But this is new in the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is a significant moment. If the confession of Peter essentially is a reflection on the witness of the entire Old Testament, you are the Christ, as we saw last week. Jesus is the Christ. The fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. In Jesus' words to Peter, we basically have the entire New Testament. That's how pivotal this passage is. It is a reflection on the veracity, the truthfulness of the Old Testament, and the Messiah has now come. And now the Messiah declares on this confessing man, as we'll see in a moment, this confession, I will build my church, which is essentially what you see and you read in the entirety of the rest of the New Testament. This is pivotal. And at the heart of Jesus' words is this word church. The word is ekklesia. It was a word that was common in the Greek language for official gatherings of, of, of governing officials. There would be an ekklesia. It could be used of synagogue gatherings. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for God's people in Israel in various settings. But here... Jesus says, I will build my church. This is new, my church. And I want you to notice this morning that when at this most pivotal moment thus far in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is believed upon and confessed as the Christ, I mean, the whole Bible has been leading up to this moment. And at this moment, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now I ask you, 
if he says this about his church at this moment, dear friends and brothers and sisters, how significant might the church be? The church, I want you to notice, first observation, Christ's church is central and pivotal to his first coming, which we're reading about here in the Gospel of Matthew, and all the way up until his second coming and on into eternity. It's not peripheral. Jesus does not say, I'm a, I'm, this is going to be a little, sometimes being a little controversial, maybe I get your attention. He doesn't say, I will save individuals. Oh, but he does, right? Amen. And what is the church built of but saved individuals? But notice, that's not his priority mission, is the salvation of individual souls. And then, oh, I'll build a church so they have somewhere to go and they can be encouraged. Oh, no. I will build my church, this holy kingdom institution, this building, spiritual building, is the priority. Of course Jesus came to save individuals. We've seen him in his ministry, saving and ministering grace and mercy to individuals bound in their sin, individuals bound physically. Of course he's a savior for the individual, but in our hyper-individualistic culture, I want you to recognize even as Christians are abandoning the visible church in droves right at the moment, I want you to notice that for Jesus, the church is absolutely central to his coming. Secondly, the church is Christ's church. It doesn't belong to anybody else. He says, verse 18, remember what we're doing here is we're just making observations about what is clear and plain and obvious. The church, he says, Jesus says, I will build, I will build my church. My church. He owns his church. He doesn't share his church. He shares it in a sense with all those who are brought to him and joined to the church, but it's not our church. He does not even give a hint of an idea that his church will be a result of groupthink. It's not going to be, as I said in Sunday school today, up for the stock exchange with investors. It's not going to be employee-owned. It's his church. Singular. Period. It's not ours. It's no certain generations. It's not the older generations. It's not the younger generations. It's not Americans. It's not British. It's not, you know, on and on. It's not Chinese. It's, It's the church of Jesus Christ. This is so important for us to remember because the way we contend to think about the church is somehow it's mine, it ought to serve me, it ought to reflect my preferences, my desires. No, no. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His church. And we have forgotten this in our generation. And a whole a whole army of leaders, sadly, have lied to this generation and told them essentially that the church is malleable 
It can be whatever you want it to be. It can be, it can be shaped because, because it's, it's your church. It's, it needs to reflect your culture, your needs. It needs to look and sound like you. No, it's a lie. It's Christ's church. It's not my church. It's His church. Thirdly, I want you to notice as an observation that the confession of Jesus as Christ, that this confession is a revelation from God. This con- Peter's confession is a revelation from God. Let me maybe put it this way. The church is founded on grace. It's grace. Christ Jesus says to Peter, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon. Bar means son, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This is, this is a remarkable but important observation. Peter and the other disciples have been close with Jesus now for about two and a half years. Two years at least. They've been around him. They've seen him in, in untold number of ministry situations. They have witnessed his miracles. They watched him walk on water, still the waves. And even with all of that witness, apart from the sovereign grace of God the Father, their hearts are so dead in sin and unbelief that they would never have confessed Jesus as the Christ. That even this confession by Peter, this is not Peter thinking, reflecting. I mean, they are thinking, they are reflecting about who Jesus is. But the point is that Jesus says plainly, Peter, essentially, you never came to the realization of this except by grace, the revelation of my Father. So that humbles us. All that reminds us of humility that whatever the church is, that whatever we are a part of it, to the extent that we sing as we did this morning, that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's of grace. We didn't come to this naturally. We didn't put two and two together. The church is founded on grace. It's all of grace, a revelation from God. Fourthly, as what's plain and obvious, we will look next Lord's Day, next Sunday morning at verse 19 a little more. Just what does this keys of the kingdom business, what does this mean? We'll examine that more next week. But this morning, it's obvious that the church that Christ is speaking of and the apostles, including Peter, it's authoritative. Jesus, at the very least, asserts that there is authority involved in the apostles and the church. So put it this way, the church is authoritative, not subject to the whims and opinions of men. Again, as I said, it's not a a group project. Yes, they must serve. Yes, they must witness. But Christ is building His church. And His church is authoritative. His church, insofar as it is true to Christ and the gospel and the will of Christ, it calls men and women to change and repent. And it does not bow to any authority other than Jesus Christ. Which means that the church stands. That's what uh, 
many uh, thousands of pastors last Sunday uh, we alluded to in our, in our announcements and prayer, they, they essentially preach sermons. And I, I, we, I didn't preach on the topic of biblical sexuality like they all did. But I was, we, as a leadership, wanted you to know we are wholesale in, in standing firm with our other brethren, essentially saying to the Canadian government and, in, and to our government, because it's right, it's right around the corner, that you can pass all the laws you want, that we cannot call homosexuals and transgender people, for example, to repent and turn in faith to Christ. You can fine us, you can threaten us, but the church will never yield. We will not bow. We're not even going to think about it. We're not going to have a conversation. We're not going to have a meeting. Why? Because case closed, Jesus Christ is Lord over his church, period. The church is authoritative in the matters which Christ has revealed. Fifthly and finally, by way of just plain observation, Christ says He is the builder of His church. Christ is the builder of His church. And what an encouragement this is. This tells us that in the face of all opposition, that the church as ordained by God, intended by Christ, that for all the discouragements, for all the setbacks, for all the divisions, for all the false teachings, for all the failures, for all the, the, all the heartaches, Christ will build His church. The term there, gates of hell, in Old Testament and even New Testament times, um, the gates were the place where the, the officials or significant figures of the town would meet. You think of Boaz, um, when he wanted to marry Ruth, he, he went to the gates of the town and met there with the elders to talk about the purchasing of a field and so forth. It's the place of authority of judgment. And what Jesus is saying there is that I will build my church and even the most powerful forces of evil, Satan and his evil demonic host, with all their effort, though they assail the church, Christ says, I will build my church. And oh, does that encourage us. That encourages me this morning. We need to understand and be sober that the church is fading here in New Hampshire and New England. You have your head in the sand if you think otherwise. And all that COVID has done, and so many, I'll say, wishy-washy churches that have been centered upon man. People, professing Christians, are leaving the church by droves because it's, you know, uh, not convenient anymore. They've become accustomed to watching online. I recognize that some are truly homebound and can't come out, whatever. But, but I, I have met more professing Christians who are essentially walked away from the church. The church is dying in this region. As I speak, the candle, the lampstand is fading. Right now, I'm not saying it's out, but if... If we look at that, it can be disheartening. It can be discouraging. But we must remember that Christ made this promise. I will build the church. My church, he says. His church is being built. And even if in God's judgment, if there was generations of professing Christians who said, well, I don't want too much word. That was long uh, I, don't, I don't want it to mess too much with my schedule. That was boring. 
that wasn't what I liked, then God can, in His holiness, after a while, say, in holiness, okay, I will give you what you want. I will take my word. I will take the preaching of my word. I will take reverent worship so that you cannot find it. It's frightening, and I do believe that that is essentially partly what is going on in our region at this time. But we must not be discouraged, and we must keep the big picture that even though God is doing different work building His church in different regions of the globe at different times in history. We are very similar, by the way, to Scotland and England where the Christianity was thriving just a few hundred years ago. And now Scotland, which was a center of, of godly, Christ-pleasing worship and churchmanship 300 years ago, 200 years ago, It's the most secular nation among all the European nations in this day. Very hard to find a church. They're there. But even though God may be doing different works in different parts of the country, of the world at different times, we must not lose heart and we must take note, Christ is the builder of His church and His work will be completed. That's both encouraging and it also means as a believer, I want to get in line. Because Christ is going to build His church. The only question is, Am I going to be working with him using the gifts that he's given me? So these are five observations. I, I, maybe there's more that you could uh, point out. But before we looked at what is meant by this language about rock and foundation and keys of the kingdom, I thought it was important to just note that there are some things on the surface that are very plain and that we need to take into account. Well, in the remainder of our time, I want to briefly consider, I want to consider what does Jesus mean in verse 18 in particular when he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I want to examine in the time that remains, what does Jesus mean by this rock imagery, and who is, or what is the rock? As I alluded to last week and even this morning, it's very challenging for us to uh, come to this passage, this verse, with a clear mind because of the reality of how the Roman Catholic Church has taken this and abused it. Um, The Roman Catholic Church, I quote from their most recent Catholic catechism, I'm quoting this from the Vatican's website. Christ governs the church through Peter and the other apostles who are present in their successors, the Pope and the College of Bishops. Or another quote from the Catechism. The Roman pontiff, or Pope, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, universal power over the whole church, a power which he can exercise unhindered, end quote. Most recent Roman Catholic catechism. The Roman Catholic magisterium, that is their understanding of the authority and structure of their church, looks at verse 18 and says, Jesus said, 
that Peter was the first pope and that all authority, the keys of the kingdom in verse 19, reside in him. And therefore, that every successor of Peter is the representative of Christ on earth and rules. You must understand that the Pope rules as king. And he is also said to be, when he speaks to matters pertaining to judgments concerning the church, he is infallible, inerrant, and inspired as much as Holy Scripture. Wow, that's a lot to get out of verse 18. So we reject that. I won't take the time and say all the reasons why, but that is, you can see that's just manufactured. Jesus is speaking to Peter, but there's nothing here about successive popes. There's nothing about Peter alone holding authority. In fact, to just demonstrate that that is not true, consider that, that Peter was with the other apostles in the early church in the book of Acts, while he was the lead, he was one among a plurality of apostles. The apostles actually sent Peter on a mission. You wouldn't think if he was the Pope that he would be sent by anybody. And then most remarkably, in Galatians, the apostle Paul recounts a time when Peter was rebuked by Paul. When Paul had to rebuke the Apostle Peter to his face on the subject of the gospel. And so, obviously, if Peter is the singular authority, infallible, then you don't have him being corrected and rebuked by another apostle. And so, the New Testament witness does not bear out the Roman Catholic model of one man being essentially king over the church, the magisterium, and that those who are his successors holding likewise that authority and power. So what what does Jesus mean then? Well, first, we want to recognize or especially pay attention that what Jesus says in verse 18 is in response to Peter's confession. And what did Peter say? Let's look at it again in verse 16. Simon Peter answered when asked who, who, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The confession is dominant in this paragraph. The confession is key. Everything that Jesus says to Peter is on the other side of this confession. It is in response to this confession. It is related to this confession. The confession that Peter makes, which is his own, and also on behalf of the other disciples. The confession is key. Last Sunday, I made a rather strong statement towards the end of my sermon saying that the confession is the rock, 
that Jesus refers to in verse 18, not Peter. Um, And my context there, I think, was the Roman Catholic Church, but I want to say to you this morning that I need to modify a bit what I said. Now, there are godly pastors, preachers, theologians throughout the history of the church that hold that the, the rock that Jesus is referring to in verse 18 is, in fact, this confession. And again, the confession, you, you can't remove the confession. From whatever the rock is, it's related to the confession. But as I reflected more on these verses this week, I, I have to come to you and I have to modify what I said so starkly because in verses 18 and 19, Jesus does use, when he says you to Peter, he is not using the you plural. He is looking Peter in the eye and he is using the first person singular, which means you, and he's looking at Peter. That is the text. That is what Jesus says. So how are we to understand this? Well, I think maybe it will help if we think about, if we reflect for a moment of the confession apart from Peter and then Peter apart from the confession. So what I'm doing is I'm I'm working to an understanding by considering a few of the options. First, let's... What is, what, so we're asking the question, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean in verse 18? I say to you that you are Peter. Peter, by the way, means rock. You are rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, it might help us first to consider the confession apart from the man, Peter. The confession or statement in verse 16 is true, isn't it? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the witness of the Old Testament. This is the witness of the Gospels and the New Testament. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you were to put it up on a banner as a statement, printed words, it's true. It's a true statement. It is the declaration of the Scriptures. It is the confession. But apart from the confession, this statement being believed upon, understood, and boldly vocalized by Peter, it's no confession. In other words, in order for it to be a confession, it must enter the heart and the mind and out of the mouth of a man. That's what a confession is. There are no, if you will, on this earth or in the church, non-human confessions floating around out there. You don't go along a tree and say, oh, look at that confession up there growing. I think I'll pluck that off. Oh, it sounds ludicrous. But my simple observation is there is no such thing as a true confession if it is a confession, if it is not coming out of the heart of a man or a woman. So the confession is true. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. But those are just bare objective realities the confession for it to be a confession must be in the mind and revealed by god the father to the mind the heart of peter and it is not a confession until he utters these words you are the christ the son of the living god so the confession 
by itself is no confession. Likewise, Peter, so the confession, let me say it this way, the confession bare bones cannot alone be the rock. It must be embodied, if you will. Peter, likewise, cannot himself alone be the rock, as essentially the Roman Catholic Church teaches, because the man, Peter himself, apart from the confession, certainly is no rock. And we don't have to look very far. In fact, we only have to look towards the end of the chapter. Only a few verses, actually. Jesus, from verse 21, started to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised up on the third day. And verse 22, the rock, Peter, takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, rock, Uh uh-uh, Satan, You are a stumbling block to me. Not a rock, not a building stone. You're a stumbling stone. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man, my point is, the man himself, apart from the truth of the confession, is no rock. And he's confessed Christ as Jesus, as Christ and the Son of the living God in verse 16. But however, unwittingly, by verse 22, he's already abandoned his confession. Why? Because he's telling, he's telling the king, Christ, no, I'm sorry, Jesus. That plan is not my plan. You've got to adjust it. So he's, he's confessed Jesus as Christ as king in verse 16, truly, but only in a matter of a few verses and moments, he's wavered. He's, he's, so the man himself as he is, is not the rock. So, what options do we have? The rock is this Christ-confessing man. That's the key. You've got to keep those three words together. Christ-confessing man. And it is Peter. Peter along with the other apostles. This is the rock. And we must keep the two together, the confession and the man. And we'll be helped. I think this is going to be very helpful as we just have a few more moments. Reflect on Jesus' words here are prophetic. This is actually what we see happening in the unfolding of the New Testament, in the building of the church. When is the New Testament, New Covenant church birthed? Turn your Bibles. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 16. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. First of all, even before Acts 2, we're not going to turn there in chapter 1. It's clear that Peter, just as he did in the days of Jesus, has a leadership role among the apostles. But in chapter 2, verse 14, on the day of Pentecost, when people are looking at the disciples who are speaking in various languages to testify that Jesus is Lord, 
Verse 14, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, the apostles, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judah and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known and give heed to my words. What's Peter doing in his sermon? This is confession, not of sin, but confessing what? We can fast forward to verse 36. The conclusion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Know what? That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Is that the confession? Isn't it? That is the confession. And whose mouth is the confession coming out of? Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This Christ-confessing man. And what do we see next? Verse 37. The birth of the church. Those who heard this were pierced to the heart. They said to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We see down in verse 41, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? The church. Jesus' words are prophetic. The confession of Peter, this Christ-confessing man, was the initial rock upon which Christ built his church. This confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is the confession of the church. It was not only Peter's, it was the confession of the apostles. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the confession of the church. And so Peter, this Christ-confessing man, along with the other apostles, is the rock or the founding stone upon which the church is built. We see this in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians. Turn with me for a moment just to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is very helpful. I think we'll clarify what Jesus is saying. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 and following. Paul there says to the church in Ephesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to believers, but you are fellow fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation. Think of a rock. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and Spirit. Who's building it? Christ. What is the foundation? The apostles and prophets. And among the apostles, it is the confession of Peter in particular that was the initial stone upon which the church was built. And that is why Jesus then says to Peter, 
you are blessed. Peter is blessed because he, in faith and obedience, spoke up. And he is, even among the apostles, unique in that blessing. And he is blessed, verse, eight, verse, uh, nine, sorry, verse 18, verse 17 of chapter 16 in Matthew. He's blessed because the Father has revealed this to Peter. And Peter, in grace and mercy, was used of God to be the initial confessing man upon which the church was built. Along with the apostles, the foundation of the church. So, what does Jesus mean when he says to Peter, you are the rock and, I will build my, and upon this rock I will build my church? I believe that Peter is this Christ, the Christ-confessing man, was uniquely blessed and used of God as the foundational piece in the church along with the other apostles. He did not in himself have the kind of authority the Roman Catholic Church speaks of. Peter, at one point, had to be rebuked by other apostles. He had to be corrected. He had to be forgiven. And yet, he was used of God in a unique way. So three application questions quickly in closing. As we reflected this morning on what Jesus says about his church, we ask ourselves first, what place does the church have in our thinking about Christ, Christianity? What place does the church have? It is central pivotal to Christ's coming now in the his first coming at present and his second coming what place does the church have in our thinking and it it is providential that we are studying in Sunday school as a church this book called devoted to Christ's church to God's church by Sinclair Ferguson and I could never have planned that I would be preaching on this text at the very time when we're studying the same thing in the Sunday school class amazing The church ought to be in a Christian's life, not so much central in terms of pivotal, but that uh, priority, but that we understand that as believers, we live our lives in the large context of Christ building his church. My family, I'm called to love my family. I'm called to work hard in my business as unto the Lord, but it is the church context that is my true abode, and if I'm a Christian, will always be unto eternity. Secondly, by way of application, the church, if it's faithful, we will seek to be Christ's church and conform our teaching to the apostles and their doctrine recorded in the New Testament. We are not at liberty to sit around in a committee and do what so many of us have done in our churches, and God forgive us, where we've asked this question, what kind of church do we want to be? That is not our prerogative. Christ never ceded that authority. He has told us in His Scriptures, by the teaching and writing of the apostles, what He wants in His church. And while we understand there's different languages, there's different times, there's different cultures and countries, different dress and so forth, there are certain fixed commonalities that you will find in every true church, in every culture, in every age, because they are the marks and the practices given by Christ himself in and through the apostles as recorded in the scriptures. If we are faithful we will seek to be Christ's church and we will be continually 
guarding and checking ourselves to make sure that as we contribute to the building of Christ's church, that we are building only on the outlines of the foundation as given in the apostolic confession and doctrine. Thirdly and finally, encouragement this morning. These are difficult days. We live in difficult days and harder times are coming. But this is not the time for us to moan and be sad and be depressed and and wish for the supposed glory days of past. No. Christ, think about it, believer, Christ called you to Himself at this time, in this place, in this culture. And He's calling us to be His church in this godless culture at this time, in this place. And we go about what we do. We serve Him. We worship Him. We obey Him under the shadow of this absolute promise and declaration, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is cause for encouragement. Nothing we do, nothing we do in service to Christ's church is lost. Can't be. Because that building, that Christ is, that work He is doing is a holy, eternal, imperishable, glorious work. And He will prevail. You're going to watch as the church becomes smaller and even more insignificant in the eyes of those who are the powers that be. You just wait for the last day when you see Christ's bride, the church, victorious and the supposed great powers of this world forgotten. Let's pray. We bless you, O God, for your grace giving us your Son, Please, please grant us a true confession of Him that involves not only our lips and our hearts, but our entire lives. And may, by Your grace, our God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ have mercy and pity upon us. We who are so subject to the fickle whims of our sinful nature, our pride, and of the assault of Satan, all have mercy And above all things we pray. We pray that more than any success in the eyes of men, we pray that you would grant that we would be true, built upon the foundation, O Christ, that you have established. And that you will see that we know and understand and love and embrace that this is your church. May you receive all the honor and glory that you alone deserve. In your name we ask, amen.